many people, um, sometimes when they try and explain a change that has taken place, um, struggle to find the language, but some people you might have heard uh, said things like uh, the difference between night and day, just like that. <laughs> it was when this happened. You know, some people uh, you, you'll see on the TV where they've got uh, a beautiful, slim woman there and then they say, I lost 20 kilos in five weeks. And then they'll show a before shot and an after shot. Tried to show how different the changes have been. It's supposed to shock us. You know, I've seen sometimes on the news they'll have a, a kid from Africa, you know, who's got a big lump in his head and they'll show the difference now that he's had this operation removed and people say the transformation that's taken place is like day or night. Uh, it's a difference as far as different between black and white, the change that takes place. Well, as we gather around the table tonight, um, the text that we're going to look at, which Gail's speaking from tonight, is from Ephesians chapter 2. And you might like to turn to that now if you have your Bibles with you. And in this passage, Paul talks about the transformation that takes place in someone's life when Jesus steps in. See if you can pick it as we read from uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. Paul writes, As for you... You are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul uses pretty graphic imagery to say what we're like without Christ. He says, you were dead in transgressions. 
uh, you are following the ways of this world. And I can remember uh, what life was like before I came to know Jesus. I think about a time particularly that sort of still haunts, still comes to mind uh, when I was at high school and just a, a bunch of guys um, hanging out together and some friends came uh, or some people came to visit their girlfriend, two guys, and one had sunglasses on acting really cool. And the guys that I was hanging around with uh, just, uh, just picked a fight. And right in the midst of it, there were punches and kicks. And right next to me, a guy just, just kicked one of these guys right smack in the mouth, in the face. And he just lay there on the ground unconscious. And I remember knowing this was wrong, but just turning and running with the rest of them. Uh, when I read, you are dead in your transgressions, following you know, the ways of this world, following the, the ruler of this world. I think that's, that's, that was me. Absolutely. And the Bible says it's like every single one of us were like that. You might not have been in a group that's, you know, kicks someone. But the Bible says all of us have turned away from God. And then it says that God who's rich in mercy, mercy is treating us not like we deserve, that he came and he saved us. The difference between day and night, black and white, and he rescued us. And he saved us through Christ and his death on the cross. You might think, of course he should. I'm a good person. Of course he should. I'm a nice guy. But the passage quickly says, uh-uh. This is not anything you did. This is God and his great love and his mercy. Treated you how you didn't deserve. This is a gift of grace. It's free. It's something that God has given to you through Jesus Christ undeserved, so you better not boast about it. Just be thankful. Take hold of it. And live as God's workman. As we gather around the table tonight, if you have recognised your sin, if you put your hand up and say, that's me, I've been running uh, not the way God planned me. I've been dead in my life. And yet I've come to a point where I realise that Jesus is the only way that I can live and find new life. Through his death on the cross, him taking upon himself my sin, him paying the penalty that I deserve, him in my place on that cross. Then you know what it's like to live. You know what it's like to be forgiven, to find freedom, to say with all your heart, salvation is here. And when we gather around this table, this is a precious time because the bread represents Christ's body on the cross, him being pierced, him being bruised for what I deserved, him, his body being hurt for what you have done. And the blood represents the blood that flowed from his body, bringing about our complete, full 
utter forgiveness. It's why we love him so much. It's why we're so thankful. That's why we dare not not forgive others and then come around and say, thank you for forgiving me, God. We become forgivers because of what he's done. We become those who don't hold things against other people. As we gather around here, we quickly say, God, we're going to make things right with other people because you have made things right with us through Jesus. So as we come, let's come with great thankfulness to eat and to share in this meal. And Steve is going to lead us in prayer as we gather around. Indeed, a most gracious God, God, for what you have done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the great sacrifice that you, you made 2,000 years ago. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for our sins. And thank you, Lord God, that it is a free gift. It's a, a gift of grace, and we're just so thankful for that. Thank you for the privilege of being able to partake in this meal, Lord God. Thank you that you left this reminder, this simple reminder, the bread, a symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ's broken body, and the blood, the blood of our Lord that had to be spilt for our sins. Thank you, Lord God, for this wonderful gift and for your gift of forgiveness too. We will eternally be thankful, Lord God, for this meal and for all that it means. And we just pray this in Jesus Christ's strong and precious name. Amen. Tonight as you're served, we just ask you to take uh, the bread and take the cup. And as you hold them, why don't you just eat the cup? As, uh, eat the bread, don't eat the cup. It will throw you out if you start eating cups. Have the bread and just eat that. And as you eat it, say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. You know, just the fact that he died on the cross doesn't mean everyone's forgiven. But when you respond saying thank you, you're forgiven. Uh, he personally died for you. Then as you serve the cup, hold on to that and we'll drink it together. He's placed us in a family. We're the church. We're his people. And we're part of a community and we'll drink together to recognise that. This is a new family, one that will last forever, that will never end the people of God. So let's share this meal with great thankfulness for all that he's done through his mercy and grace. Good evening. Does anyone remember those funny um, caps that we used to wear and you had to pull through the hairs in order to put the different coloured, uh, you know, bleachers in your hair. Do you remember that? Before foils. <laughs> well, I can remember I used to do home jobs, you know, at home to save money. And I can remember I had my, uh, this beautiful looking cap on. It's just so glamorous. And you pull the strands through for all you men and you end up looking like, I don't know, like this funny tuft of grass all on your hair. And I was halfway through this procedure with my sister and there was a knock on the door. 
And we both looked at each other and we both said, I'm not going. And she said, I'm not going, it's your house. And I thought, well, I'll have to go. So I kind of tiptoed to the front door and there was Father Kevin, um, my Catholic priest friend, all resplendent in his visiting outfit and me in my tuft of hair with the cap pulled down over my head. And I had to open the door. <laughs> so I opened the door and, and um, he was very gracious. <laughs> as he usually is, and he insisted on having a cup of tea. So the whole time I sat down with him, mortified because I was wearing this cap and uh, having tea with my priest friend and my sister was hiding in the um, bathroom. <laughs> but I have to tell you, there is a, uh, that is a before story, but afterwards there was this amazing transformation <laughs> after he left. You know, the, the colour went in and the cap was pulled off and the hair was wonderful. So there is a before and an after. And I don't know if you've noticed in your life, but you listen to people's conversation and it's often this word before features very prominently. You know, it's like before I went to uni, you know, I had 12 years at school and, you know, those years were really awful years for a lot of young people. And then uni is this life of um, great excitement and um, learning. Or before I was married, before I was married, I was really quite, you know, independent, but there was something missing in my life and I really wanted a partner, a lifelong partner, and my life changed after I was married or before I had children. There's a big one. You know, life is very different before having children. And for those of you that have had children, you'd be able to attest to the fact that life changes dramatically um, after children. So before is quite a significant word because before implies that something happens to change that situation and we experience something different afterwards. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, the passage that we're looking at here tonight really has two sides of, of the coin, the before and the after. And what we're looking at tonight is before Jesus, our life before him, and our life after Jesus, which is very, very different. And it's under the one umbrella of salvation. And my prayer is that at the end of tonight, you'll have a better, a more deeper understanding of what salvation is. Because I don't know if you're like me, but often or for a long time, I just, you know, when I gave my heart to Jesus, um, I this word salvation meant something like or went along these lines that when I die sometime in the future, which really doesn't bear any relevance to me in the present, I know I'm going to go and live with Jesus and live happily ever after. I don't know if any of you have thought about salvation like that, but it's not something that particularly is a word that has an impact on our present and I, I, my prayer is that at, by the end of the night, you'll have a much richer, a much deeper understanding, a much uh, greater thankfulness for this 
present gift of salvation that we all can share at the point of giving our lives to our Lord Jesus Christ, the before salvation and the after salvation. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's a little bit like this tree. You know, at the moment now, we look around and we're in this kind of between time, aren't we? When we see many trees like this, they're in the winter and they look dead, don't they? They look like, you know, nothing, no life can possibly come from them. And yet, this is the before and this is what it can look like after life has occurred after spring has sprung, after the blossoms have, and they're starting to happen now. And you look at these trees and you think, they just look dead. It, they just look like nothing can come from them. And yet within them, there is the potential for life. This is the, the before and the after. And this is a little bit like what salvation is for us our lives before whoop, went too far and our lives after and some of the themes that we'll be looking at tonight is that before salvation there was death and of course afterwards through salvation we have all of these things we have God's mercy and yet before that we we're under God's anger or his wrath we, uh, before salvation, we followed the ways of the world. And, and Jonathan just talked about one little example of that in the communion. And there are millions of examples of our life before salvation and following the world's way. And, and now, after salvation, how we stand for Christ. Before salvation, we were God's enemies. And yet after salvation, we are God's children. Before salvation, we are actually, the Bible says, enslaved to Satan. And yet after salvation, we are free in Christ. We have freedom. And before salvation, we, we experience bondage to the way of the world, to the sins of the flesh. And sometimes our life before salvation could have felt like it was really in the pit. And yet after salvation, the Bible says that we have been raised to new life. And I'm just going to ask Maggie, I don't know where she is. Maggie, come up here. Maggie's going to share very, very briefly her life before and after she met Jesus. Come on up, Meg. This is Maggie Border. Let's give her a, a hand. Can she use that? Hi, guys. Um, I came to know Christ when I was in year 12. So um, I lived the first 17 years of my life without knowing God. And I was pretty blessed to have gone to an Anglican school. So I knew, I briefly did know the message and... Um, I knew who Jesus was, I knew the Christmas story, but I didn't realise that you had to make a decision about God. And I was very proud to, like, you know, actively dismiss God. And I don't think, my life wasn't overtly sinful. Um, I was a bit young, really, to be going out and doing all the parting stuff, but um, all my motivations were very selfish, and I was a very, very selfish person. 
and I was also a terrible perfectionist. And um, I was just, basically I was God of my own life. And um, I was really proud of being God of my own life. Um, everything I wanted to do, I was going to achieve and do myself. I was going to go off and um, make millions of dollars. Maybe I would eventually marry and I, I might adopt some children because I didn't want to get stretch marks on my stomach. And um, <laughs> I was going to, maybe I would find a cure for AIDS or something, but um, you know, everything I was going to do was going to be done myself and it was going to, I was going to achieve it myself. And it became very insular and no one was going to get in the way of me doing that. And it was a very selfish way of living. And um, I think in year 12, you know, God was gracious and, you know, I was a pretty, you know, pretty disgusting person, really. It's uh, not very likable, but God, um, in his grace, um, put a desire in my heart to know him. And I did become a Christian in, in year 12 through some friends and through a crusader organisation. And it wasn't an immediate change of... Um, wasn't an immediate change of motivations, but as I grew in my understanding and knowledge of God, I, I man managed to abandon my checklist and um, kind of my perfectionist checklist. It kind of, you know, it's kind of, it's still going out the door. You know, God's still transforming my life, but um, now my motivations are very different. It's, um, in a way, my life is a lot simpler. I don't have to go out and achieve all these things because. Um, the values of knowing, when you know God, your values are different to the values of the world. You don't have to have the perfect car, you don't have to have the perfect job or anything like that. You've just got to know God and use what he has given you to serve him at, um, serve him with all you can, really. So that's been the change in my life since I've known God. And while I still have the same friends, you know, I still have the same family, <laughs> they may not particularly agree with um, me being a Christian, but and we're working on and praying on that, but um, overt, like, you know, it's still, you know, some people might not recognise a huge change if they didn't know me, but my motivations and values are just completely done 180 degree, so, yeah. That's about it. Thank you, Nikki. It's always so exciting, isn't it? So wonderful to hear our testimonies, and they don't have to be that we were absolutely just, you know, mass murderers, uh, and then we suddenly become so different. But we have been separated from God. And as we'll see from our scriptures tonight, God says that once you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What does that mean? Why does God say that we were dead in our sins and transgressions? Why is this such a, a difference between the before and the after? Why does God hate so much our sins and our transgressions? And, you know, a really significant um, scripture that can help us to understand why God hates our life before we became Christians or before we asked Jesus into our life, for those of us that have, uh, goes back to Genesis 3.10, the fall, when um, 
um, Adam said when he, uh, he was uh, in the garden with God, he said, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Up to that point, Adam and Eve had had a beautiful, open, intimate, transparent, wonderful relationship with God. But we know that they sinned because there was everything they could have had, everything to have made them happy and content, intimate, connected with God. There was only one thing they weren't allowed to have, and that was to eat of the tree of good and evil. And yet that was the one thing that they did do. And, and it wasn't because so much that they ate a fruit that created so much suffering. It was the fact that they wanted to be like God. They decided that just to uh, obey God and enjoy his companionship was not enough. Like Maggie said, they wanted to be ruler of their own life. And as a consequence of that, as a consequence of doing something that God had told them not to do, and um, because they knew that they would know the difference between good and evil, they, they disobeyed. And at that point, they sinned and sin came into their life. And as a result, there were all of these outworkings and it's gone on and on and on um, right up until this present day. What happened? Well, first of all, they hid. They separated themselves from God. And that was really sin. That was the beginning of sin. That is sin in a nutshell. It's our separation from God. And when we become separated from God, what happens is all of these negative, terrible bondage emotions come into our lives. They, Adam says, I was afraid. So fear entered at that point. Up until that point, Man had never experienced fear and yet fear came in at that point and derailed man. But not only was there negative emotions, there was behaviours that resulted and self-condemnation. Adam said, because I was naked. And it wasn't just a physical nakedness. It was a soul nakedness. It was an emotional and spiritual nakedness. It meant that he was shamed to the very core. So where once God had created us for relationship because he is relational, for acceptance, for love, for value, and that was to be reflected in us in relationship, what had happened now was that it had become completely destroyed. We had become separated from God. Our sin of wanting to be like God drove us from him and we had all of these outworkings which we see in our own lives and in the lives of those around us and in the world. The separation from God created a wrath, created an anger from God. God hates our sin, yet he loves us. But what had happened is that the very heart that God created within, within us, the heart to experience a connectedness with him, a belonging, a value, an acceptance with him, that heart is still yearning 
for those things and yet most people in this world are looking in the wrong places. Because you see, we live in a world order now that says that we don't need God. We, we, we are God. Just as, as Maggie explained in her testimony. And that is perpetuated through our schools, through our universities, where God is dismissed or abhorred. And as a result, we've become uh, part of a world system that believes that we were created by stuff, by the Big Bang, by evolution. And the point is that if we believe we were created by just stuff, then we'll fill our heart that has been created for a longing and a relationship and an intimacy with God, not with God, but with stuff. And that's what we see in our world today. Our world today is absolutely miserable. It's looking for that intimacy with uh, a creator, but instead we've been fed a lie. And so people are stuffing their lives with things that won't last with addictions, with uh, success, with perfectionism, with materialism, with secularism. We're stuffing our lives with things. And as a result, God says, you're dead. You're dead in your transgressions because you used to live like this. You were the before people. You used to live like this when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And, of course, we know that that ruler of the kingdom of the air is actually the devil. And the ancients believed that the earth, between the earth and heaven, that little section there, that atmosphere, was actually the rule or the domain of evil spirits. And I have to tell you that Satan is alive and well in this world and you just only have to look around you to see that that is true. And, you know, before we received salvation, before we came to know Jesus Christ, we were actually in bondage to the devil and to the world and to the flesh and to his ways. And he is still keeping majority of the world in bondage to him. And yet we know that this is only temporary. We know that the world is still God's. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves this world and yet the devil has temporary influence over this world and sometimes it can feel like the devil has won the victory. But 1 John 4.4 tells us, He who is in us, that is Christ Jesus, who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. 
John 16, 33 says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. We live in this world, all of us, and I know, I know you. I know that you're like me, that you still struggle. You go to work, you go to uni, you're at home with children, you're at school, and you know that you're living in Christ. You're the after people, not the before. You've received salvation. Yet the world is still impacting on you. The world is still so powerful. The other day I was looking in the paper and um, there was a photograph of Misha Barton and she's a, an actress on the OC. And there were all these young girls surrounding her and they were looking up at her with these adoring eyes. And I know God loves that young woman. She's beautiful looking and I'm sure she's a beautiful person. But, you know, as a model, as an example, as an idol for young girls, this actress plays a character who has multiple partners, premarital sex, and is lost, just is lost in her life. And here is a photograph of these young girls wanting to emulate this woman. Now, I'm not saying this woman is evil, but she's a before person, or her character is, <laughs> and, and she's in bondage to the mighty prince of this air, and so are those young lives that want to emulate this woman. The devil's schemes are so incredibly deceptive. And we would look at this lovely young woman and say, well, you know, why wouldn't you want to look like her or, or be like her? She's got fame, she's got wealth, she's got success, she's a celebrity. But just take a look at the lives of some of these celebrities. Drug use, multiple partners, anorexia, the list goes on and on. That's the way of the world. And all of us, the Bible says, used to live this way. All of us. At one time, we gratified the cravings of our sinful nature and we followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were like this. We were once the before people. And God really feels very sad about that. When, when this passage talks about the fact that we were objects of wrath, think of the difference of those words compared to God's original plan for us to be not an object but created in his image, created to commune with him daily, to be in relationship with him, a love relationship, to be yearned for, desired for, and because of the fall, 
And because we have gone the ways of the world, we've gone from that image to an image of an object and an object of wrath. And when you read the commentaries, this word wrath really doesn't mean that God is going to explode and be completely angry with us. We don't experience God that way. It's a little bit like the prodigal son. And you remember the story in Luke 15 where the father had two sons and one son, he remained at home and he was the good son. But the other son, he went off to seek his fortune and he squandered it on wild living. And yet the father loved both those sons equally. And his heart yearned for the son that was lost, the son that was going the way of the world. And the son that went the way of the world, the prodigal, woke up one day and he, he thought, why am I living like this? I'll come back to my father. I'll come back as a servant. But the passage tells us in Luke 15, 32, that the father saw the son from afar and was just so excited because he said, my son that was lost has now been found. He that was dead is now alive. And that's a bit like God's wrath, that God loves those of us that have found Jesus the after people, but he loves those that have not surrendered to Christ. But he is, has this perpetual displeasure at the way that they're living, the way that they are living their lives, separated from him. And, you know, we have to live in the world. You know, we even when we've given our hearts to Jesus, the Bible says we are to be in the world but not of the world. We, we have to live, work and, and enjoy the world. You know, God wants us to live life and life in all its fullness. In, in John 10, 10, the Bible says the devil comes to seek, rob, kill and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life in all its fullness. God wants us to, to live life in abundance, in all its fullness, but, but we do it in a very godly way. And I, I just want to read to you from Titus 2, 12 to 13, because I think it helps us to understand how do we, the after people who have maybe um, those of us here tonight who have given our hearts to Jesus, how do we live in the world and yet not incur uh, the wrath of God? Titus 2, 12 to 13 says, And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. Notice he says godless living. He doesn't say we are to turn from living. And he says sinful pleasures. He doesn't say we are to turn from pleasure. We are to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with self-control, right conduct and devotion to God. 
while we look forward to that wonderful event when the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. So we're to live in the world with self-control, still living, still enjoying its pleasures, but we're to live with self-control, right conduct and right conduct. So once upon a time, before we knew Jesus, we were enslaved to the ways of the world. Just to give you one more example, I heard today that in Australia, one in three people that come to work come medicated in some way, either through alcohol, drugs or medication. One in three. And I think, why is that? It's obvious, isn't it? If God created our heart to have a relationship with him only and to have our heart, our very soul, filled with acceptance and value from him and we refuse that and we step outside that and separate ourselves from that, then we look for something else that's going to stuff our lives, fill that longing. Well, God says we're the living dead. We were dead. But in Ephesians, that is not the end of the story. And one of the main points in this scripture is that God will not stay out of the picture. He refuses to. And we can see in verse 4 that God was so rich in mercy and he loved us so very much that even while we were dead, because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. God gave us life. Oh, the love of God. I just would really hope tonight that if there are people here that have never experienced the love of God, that you'd surrender your life to him tonight. You know, 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. But the the real key to that is that through God's great mercy and through God's great grace, he gave us life. He gave us life in all abundance. And he raised us from the dead along with Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms all because we are one with Christ. Now, I just find this particular passage incredible. You know, as I said earlier, to me salvation was about Thank you, Jesus. I've given my heart to you. And when I die, sometime in the future, I'm going to be in heaven with you. That's not what this passage is saying. 
This passage is saying that, you know, before, before Christ, before you gave your hearts to him, you were dead. But the minute you gave your heart to Christ when you invited him into your life, you are alive. You are the after people and you are alive right now. Salvation is here. We sang that song just before. Salvation is here right now and it's far more richer. It's far more fuller than you could ever imagine and it's here for us right now. And what does it look like? Well, this passage tells us what it looks like. This passage says three things. We are alive. So the one before tells us we are alive. That is the first point. The second point is that we have been raised with Christ, raised with him through identification, through participation with his ascension. That's an incredible thought. I can hardly get my mind around that, that I have not only become alive, but I've been raised up with Christ. You know what I think when I think about that? I think that I have the power within me because of Christ to rise above the muck of the world, to rise above the deception of the world, to rise above the entrapments of the world, to rise above the bondages of the world, the the stuff that people get ensnared in. Jesus Christ that lives in me has given me that ability because of, of, of him living in me and because of my identity with his uh, ascension, his resurrection and ascension, I have been raised up from the things that the world would try to drag me down into. And not only that, not only have I been made alive through salvation and his gift of grace, But I have been raised and I sit with him in heavenly places, in heavenly realms. We just heard earlier in the passage that the devil has authority over the heavenly realms. But in this passage, in this part of the scripture, it says that I am seated in victory with Jesus in the heavenly realms. That means I have victory over the devil in my life when I have given my life to Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means that as a Christian, through salvation, I no longer have to be harassed by the devil. I no longer have to be entrapped in bondage by the devil. I sit with Jesus in the heavenly realms. I I just couldn't get my head around this and I was trying to think of a time that I really experienced such a kind of sense of euphoria and all I could think of was um, at Easter, we went up to Mount Kosciuszko um, and with Carl's family and we thought we were going on this lovely picnic and we pulled up to this beautiful spot uh, which was really on top of a very high ridge 
and we brought out the picnic stuff and Carl's father brought out the abseiling gear. And his idea of a good time was, was not to sit and have, you know, a nice picnic. It was to get out the abseiling gear and to go down the side of this cliff. So um, I actually had a go. And um, there's a photo of me all strapped in the abseiling gear. And there's a sense that when you, you actually lean out with the rope and there is nothing, you know, for... I don't know how far, Carl, a long way. <laughs> and you're just suspended there uh, by someone else. There's this whole sense of being alive, of being actually kind of pretty well raised up. <laughs> I don't know that I was actually sitting in the heavenlies, but it kind of felt like that. And it was, it was a really amazing experience. And I wonder... Is that the experience that we are to have daily with Jesus, that sense of being fully alive in Christ, fully raised up, seated with him in the heavenly realms? Why? Why does God want to give us this amazing gift? Well, he wants us to be his children we saw that earlier in the slide. But why else? He wants us to reflect Christ. He wants us to be his examples here on earth. Verse 7 says, So God can always point to us as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done for us through Christ Jesus. That's why we are Jesus to a hurting world. We are to reflect him. We are to be his example. We have been reconciled back to God. And this verse is such a significant, seminal verse in the Bible because it says, God saved you by his grace. What's grace? Grace is God's unmerited favour to us. We just experienced communion and through that we shared in his body and his blood. That's grace. Jesus dying for us on the cross. God saved us through Jesus' death. When you believed, that was the after. And once again, Paul reinforces because he knows the old sin nature. You can't take credit for it. You can't boast. That was the before nature that would still be inclined to say, like Maggie, you know, I can do this myself. I'm God. No, God's gift of salvation is free and it's his gift to us. It's through, <coughs> it's through grace. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. Salvation is more than forgiveness. It's deliverance from death. It's deliverance from slavery and it's deliverance from the wrath of God. 
It includes the totality of our new life in Christ and together with him we've been made alive, exalted and seated in the heavenly realm. Grace is God's free and undeserved mercy towards us and faith is the humble trust with which we receive it for ourselves. Salvation is our recreation from the before man to the after man. We have been recreated and the last verse tells us what have we been recreated into This is an amazing verse. It says, for we are his masterpiece. In other other, um, Bibles it says, we are his workmanship. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he had planned for us long ago. We are his masterpiece. Do you feel like Jesus' masterpiece? Do you feel like a masterpiece? I've said this before, but last year year I had my epiphany. I went and saw um, the Pieta by Michelangelo and the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. And it was a spiritual experience for me. But you know what? You cannot separate out the artist from his art. When I looked at those beautiful works of art, I was in awe by their creator. The art to me reflected the creator. And and I really did. I had a meltdown. It was just more than I could ever have imagined. We are God's masterpiece. If we have asked Jesus into our hearts, We are the after people. We are alive. We are raised up. We are seated in the heavenlies. And to top it off like the cherry on the cake, God says, we're his masterpiece. You can't separate us from the creator. It's amazing. I have to ask you, When did you feel you were truly born? When did you really believe you were fully alive? Was it when you gave your heart to Jesus? The scripture that we looked at tonight started with a walk, a walk in sin. And it ends with a walk, a walk in the will of God to do the good things that he planned for us long ago. A walk that God had planned for every one of you that has received salvation. There'll be some of you here tonight that have not formally asked Jesus into your life. Ah, what's stopping you? What is stopping you? The world offers nothing. It's just, it's just so sad. You're just going to be kept in bondage. But life in Jesus, life in Jesus offers us riches 
mercy, grace, being raised up, being fully alive, being seated with Christ, reflecting God, being his masterpiece. Tonight, I want to ask if there's anyone here tonight that has not received the gift of salvation, do it tonight. Become an after person. When I die, I thought about this. I think about dying quite often, really. And I think about what would I love people to say about me? And I remember having a real sense from the Lord that the one thing I would love people to say about Gail Hill is that, boy, she might have been a ditzy blonde, but boy, did she love Jesus. That's what I'd love people to say to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for your gift of grace, your gift of salvation. Lord, thank you that we have gone from before people to being after people. But Lord, I pray that those that have not made that transition tonight, Lord, I pray that they will make that transition tonight. And Lord, I pray for those of us that have. Oh Lord, I just pray that we will claim the incredible riches that you have for us, that we will claim your incredible mercy in our lives, that we will claim the fact that you have made us fully alive, that you have raised us above the muck of the world, that you seat us right up there in the heavenlies. Lord, I pray that we will know that we really are your masterpiece and that we'll go on to do the good works that you have called us to do. Oh, Lord, we just thank you so much for your son and your gift of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.